please remain standing as you're able. And um, as we come together before God's Word, I would just say to you that my suspicion is if in 50 years we show another video uh, of this church, that the pictures will be different. People will be different and the activities will be different because the world, our world, is constantly changing. We often find ourselves in territory that seems uh, strange uh, and uh, new at the very least. And what I want to do is acknowledge for you that the church is in that kind of territory too. So over the next uh, several weeks, I want to talk with you about how the church finds its way in this new world. And my belief is that God has given us paths that are true and that are tested, and we can follow these paths in any terrain and time, and so we'll be looking at them together. But we begin first by looking at uh, the story of Moses and the Israelites this morning. But first, let's join together and confess our own faith as we participate in the reciting of the Shema. I'll invite you to follow after me in Hebrew, and then we'll do it in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The first scripture is from Exodus, the first chapter, beginning in verse 8. Then a new Pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelites are becoming too numerous for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will fight with our enemies and leave the country. And so slave masters were put over them, and they oppressed them with forced labor. Then we move forward. After the exodus and after the slaves have escaped, this is the 14th chapter of Numbers, beginning in verse 1. That night, the whole community raised their voice and wept aloud. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Why did the Lord bring us out here only to die by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. If only we could go back to Egypt. We should, they said to each other, choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Judging by the commercials that I see on TV, the most valuable thing in the universe is not oil or gold or even water. It appears that it is beer. When you look at advertisements, it's amazing what people in the commercials will do for beer. They will drill into other people's refrigerators. They will uh, pretend to be someone they're not. They will cross-dress. They will do all sorts of things just to get beer. But you know what? They are not the first people in history who worked for beer. In the days of the pharaohs, the Israelite servants in the land of Goshen were paid in beer. They were paid, they were given a pint of beer a day, they were given a ration of bread, fish, cucumber, they were given uh, three bedroom apartments, archaeologists have discovered, in which to live, and uh, they were given maid service once a week while they were working for Pharaoh. I had no idea. 
until I saw the research on this topic. But the Israelites in the days of Joseph settled in what's known as the land of Goshen, which is a beautiful part of Egypt, a very fertile land along the Nile River. And so for six months a year, they farmed this very, very rich land. But for several months a year, the Nile floods. You can't farm. And so the Pharaoh, according to historical records, invited them along with other peoples to work for him. They would work these other several months on temples. They would work on palaces and other public projects that would announce the greatness of the Pharaoh. So they had guaranteed employment. They had guaranteed food. And now it makes sense to me that when they leave Egypt some years later, they're out in the middle of the wilderness, they're hungry and they're thirsty, they said, let's go back to Egypt. What a good deal we had there. And for a while, it must have seemed like a pretty good deal. You serve the Pharaoh and he gives you everything you need. Pretty good system. So pretty good system there in Egypt, unless, of course, you were the aged, you were the very young, you were the poor, you were the sick, you were the physically challenged, or you were Pharaoh's enemies. Then you were left out in the cold and you often were at risk of feeling the cold steel of Pharaoh's chariots. The system only worked for those who were strong enough to support Pharaoh and help him with his projects. Seemed like it was a pretty good system. Everybody got a lot to eat. Egypt was the breadbasket of the world. It was very impressive. In fact, the pyramids were already a thousand years old by the time Moses was born. It was an unbelievable society with amazing technology. Seemed to be a pretty good system. Unless, of course, you were the Pharaoh. I always thought Pharaoh had a pretty good deal. But apparently what happened is that Pharaohs early on got tied in with the gods, one of the gods, most of them with Amun-Ra, the sun god. And you'll see uh, thousands and thousands of statues in Egypt of the sun god sitting down and Pharaoh in his lap. And the message, because Egyptian messages were always in pictures, the message was always... Pharaoh and the sun god are tight. Because the Pharaoh does his thing, the sun comes up every morning, sets in the evening. Other pictures showed that when the, because the Pharaoh does his thing, because he does it well, the Nile floods annually, giving us wonderful crops. Because Pharaoh does his thing, your babies are born healthy. Because Pharaoh does his thing, your land is secure. Basically, uh, the Egyptian language said this, the universe holds together, or said it in pictures, the universe holds together because of Pharaoh. And so if things break down, it's Pharaoh's fault. Can you imagine what it must be like to get up every morning and know if you don't do this right, the sun's not coming up the next day? If you don't do this right, there'll be no crops for your people. There'll be no bread for the world. Rob Bell from Mars Hill Church has a wonderful um, uh, uh quote about Exodus, the first chapter where slave masters are are beating the Hebrew slaves. And he said, what you need to picture is there's probably a master of the slave master who's going to beat him if things don't get done. And there's someone over him who's probably going to beat him. And then finally there at the top is Pharaoh who's worried that if he doesn't get this right, the sun's not coming up tomorrow. That's a tough way to live, to be responsible for the universe. It was a great system, unless you were the poor and weak. 
It was a great system unless you had all the pressures of Pharaoh. It was a great system unless you were the God of the universe and you watched your people getting sucked into Egyptian ways. Enough beer, enough bread, enough maidservants, and Egypt looks pretty good. We know that the Israelites who lived in Egypt worshipped the gods of the Egyptians. Joshua says this. Chapter 24, Joshua, when they get to the the promised land, he says to them, now you need to choose who you're going to serve as God, he says. You can serve the gods of the Egyptians that your fathers served or serve the God of the universe. When the people escaped from Egypt and Moses was on Mount Sinai, they got a little restless. And remember, they built this golden calf. What we know uh, from Egyptian mythology is the golden calf is the god Hathor. They were still worshiping Egyptian gods even after they left Egypt. So the system didn't completely work. In fact, the truth of the matter is the system was a lie. Pharaoh didn't make the sun come up. He didn't make it set. The gods of the Egyptians did not uh, make people have health and life and plenty of food. It was all a lie. But if you're a Hebrew and you're eating well, drinking well working steadily with three-day weekends. Now, the work week was 10 days, but there was a three-day weekend at the end. Looks pretty good to you. Reminds me of the movie, you've heard me talk about it probably more than you want to, but let me go one more time. The Matrix, where people are trapped as slaves in a world, but they have no idea that the world that they live in is an illusion. And that they really aren't free and that they're really slaves. And so you remember, the only way to find out what's really going on in the world is there's this pill that you take that wakes you up to reality. So that the God of the Hebrews has got an issue. How can this God get his people to take that pill? How does he wake them up to the fact that these gods of the Egyptians are not real? This is what the Bible says. God allows a new Pharaoh to come to power. And this new Pharaoh doesn't remember or care about the deals the old Pharaohs cut. And now he sees the Israelites as an enemy and he no longer has them work hard for reward. They work hard for nothing. And life gets hard. It gets oppressive. And their world changes. And they're in crisis. And I think God allows this because there's nothing quite like a crisis to wake us up to reality. Have you ever noticed that in your life or in the life of a friend that a crisis just sort of causes them maybe to snap to and get their life back in order? You've heard the old adage that people don't change when they see the light. They change when they feel the heat. And they did. They were starting to feel the heat. And God allowed this crisis to show them the gods of Egypt were not real. And that life that they were having was not life as God would intend I think it still works that way in our day. Crises have a wonderful opportunity of, of bringing us back to new realities. 9-11 changed so many things. Sure, we woke up to the fact that there, there are terrorists in the world and, and our standing in the world is not universally, uh, uh, we're not universally loved as a country. But more than that, what you saw was that people started to reinvest in their families, reinvest in relationships. You saw that people got a chance for a do-over in their lives, and they started to take it. Economic recession that we're hopefully pulling out of, same sort of thing. It's an opportunity for people to kind of relook. 
One of the things that's happening, you've probably seen the statistics like NPR advertising. They've been in the paper. You know, 50%, 56% of Harvard graduates were going to work on Wall Street or they were consultants. Now, a large percentage of Ivy League graduates are going into public service and going to help the world be a better place. There's an opportunity in this crisis to sort of wake up and do something a little differently. Uh, Kurt Anderson's uh, radio host has written an interesting book, and he calls it Reset. And he talks about the opportunities that come with the economic recession and the crisis we're in to, to reexamine our life and our world and do things differently. And he quotes the old REM song, and he said, it's the end of the world as we know it. But then he adds this, but it's not the end of the world. And so the way that we've done things perhaps is over, but we still have a chance to do things better and differently. Maybe you've seen crisis work in your own life or in the life of someone you love. How often it happens that uh, we have a heart attack or our brother dies from a heart attack. And what do we do? We change our diet. We start to exercise. We use it as an opportunity to do things differently. I believe that crises have a wonderful way of adjusting us to reality. And I say all of this to tell you what you probably already know. The church, the Protestant church in North America is in crisis. The numbers of people attending worship on Sunday morning are down to 50-year lows. More than that, the influence that the church has in society and culture is down The laws that restrict the movement and growth and placement of churches are up. The social indicators of social health among Christians are no better than non-Christians. We suffer the same amount of difficulties in our life and to which we contribute many things. We're part of the cause. So basically in the world you're seeing that the church really isn't much different than everybody else. And people are seeing that. I believe that this is a wonderful opportunity. That this crisis will give us a chance to re-examine what God really is calling us to do and to be as a body of Christ. You see, for too long, we in North America have played Egyptian church. Instead of pyramids, we build large sanctuaries. Instead of pharaohs, we have senior pastors, many of whom are on TV. And, and we perpetuate this image of we make it run. We make it work. We change things for God rather than allow God to work through us. read an interesting article. I never thought of it this way. The guy was talking about the steroid era in baseball. And if you're a baseball fan, you're pretty disgusted about what went on for a decade or more with baseball players. And he said, we are just now realizing we've been in the steroid era of church. That we thought bigger, better was the answer. And we cut corners. We did whatever to get to that size. We worshipped at the altar of the God's success. And we marketed the gospel. We played the faith to consumers and invited them to consume. We tried to have a better deal than the church next door for our members. 
It's interesting that a lot of the complaints that pastors hear typically about their church when people are not happy don't have to do with this church doesn't help me obey the Bible. They don't really have to do with this church hasn't helped me find my mission in the world. They don't really have to do with this church has not deepened my prayer life and my life with Christ. They're more like, I was sick and church didn't visit me. Youth program's not interesting. Nursery's not nice enough for my child. And these are legitimate complaints because we have catered and we've shopped the gospel to consumers. How do I know that? Because, friends, I've been the high priest of that cult. For many years, I bought into if some was good, more was better. But is that really what God called us to do? Does a pyramid really mean that your God is alive and big? Or is it something else? I think this crisis gives us an opportunity to look at those something else to see if we can go back and learn what the Israelites learned, which is what is it that God really wants? What is it that God is really doing? We have a chance to do that. So over the next few Sundays, I'm going to go back to some of those basics with you. In football season, I can't help remember the legend of Vince Lombardi, a Hall of Fame coach. When his team was struggling, Lombardi, according to legend, would come to practice and he would take a football and he would start by saying this, Gentlemen, this is a football. And he would teach blocking and tackling the very basics. What I'd like to do over the next few weeks is to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, this is the kingdom. These are the basics. Let's be about these things. may not make us bigger, but it may make us who God is calling us to be. Got a couple of interesting emails this week. One came to me, one came to another of the pastors. Um, you know that we're getting ready to celebrate our 100th year. And that's a wonderful anniversary. But for other people, the more real anniversary is that Hurricane Ike was a year ago. And I got a letter from a guy or email in Port Arthur, Texas. Lives just outside Port Arthur. When Hurricane Ike changed his world, he ended up being evacuated to our church and spent, and spent quite some time here met a lot of you. And this is what he said to me. He said, I just wanted to remind you, because he's emailed me before, that before Hurricane Ike said, I never went to church. I believed in God, but after my house was destroyed, I wasn't really sure I believed in God anymore. He said, then I ended up in your gym. And I met your people. And they listened to me. And they walked with me. And he said, I want you to know that I have come to believe in the God that they showed me. He didn't even send me a check. He didn't ask to join my membership role. And that's okay. Because this is what it's about. It's about helping and changing a life with the gospel. And you did it. Pastor Mike got an email. Man was not a church-going man, has a family, but, but they don't go. Did not they doesn't believe in God, just doesn't go to church. Started going to the foundry and drinking coffee with some of our people there. 
started being in conversations with them, started working as a volunteer alongside of them. And then a couple Sundays ago, for the first time ever in their married life, they came to church at New Heights. I don't know if they gave us any money. They're not on the roll. Can't claim them as a statistic. It doesn't matter. Because this is what it is to be the church. To listen. To love. To share. That's who we are. And God willing, for the next hundred years, that's who we'll remain. 